Hello and welcome to the Alatea Foundation podcast. My name is Stephen Cole. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Dr. Michelle Maiden to the program. Dr. Michelle Maiden is head of China Energy Research at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Before joining OIES in July 2019, she headed cross-commodity China research at Energy Aspects. And prior to that, she headed China Matters, an independent research consultancy providing analysis on the politics of energy in China. Dr. Maiden, welcome to the Alatea Foundation podcast. Thank you, Stephen. It's lovely to be here. So let's start and give us a, an overview of China's energy market. For example, is China the world's leading energy importer uh, and um, largest emitter of CO2? China, easily enough, is all of the above. It is the biggest producer and consumer of coal. It is the biggest emitter of CO2. It is the largest importer and consuming country of oil. It's on track to be the largest LNG importer, but it is also importantly the biggest manufacturer and deployer of renewable energy in the world. So it's a complex picture with China really being a bit of everything. China, as you hinted there, is quickly becoming the dominant force in LNG. I thought China was the biggest importer already, but um, Chinese buyers are counting, I think, for 40% of recent long-term LNG contracts among the global players. Why has China adopted this long-term approach? China has been vying with Japan for the number one LNG importer, and it was very much on track in 2021, but then last year LNG imports fell. Um, and so Japan has regained its sort of position as number one LNG importer. But as LNG gas demand and LNG imports rise, China will be the first, the biggest LNG importer. I mean, the need for long term contracts, I don't think it was it's just a China story in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of the volatility in global markets. A lot of players in the system have been looking for security and stability. Um, which means sort of long-term LNG contracts. So over the past couple of years, we have indeed, indeed seen Chinese buyers secure additional uh, long-term LNG contracts. Part of that started at the end of 2021 when China had power outages. And again, it was more of a domestic view that China just needed the supplies going forward. And then of course, last year in 22, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, volatility in global gas prices, and Europe going out to secure more LNG contracts. There was a bit of a rush for Chinese buyers to secure term contracts. But at the same time, there are lots of the so-called tier two players, so independent or smaller companies in the Chinese system um, that are looking for a spot in the domestic market, and they tend to do more spot contracts. So I think it's a bit like what happens more broadly in the industry. You get these waves of um, buyers looking for longer term stability and then opting for shorter term or spot contracts to give them some flexibility in the portfolio. So I think we will see a bit more of the spot and the flexibility coming in once the sort of big base load of supplies has been secured. And China takes a very active role in viewing the markets and they buy spot gas when cheap and sell off uh, when the price increases, the surplus. Is that a, a good strategy? I mean, it's a relatively new strategy that we saw play out last year, again, with zero COVID in China that had impacted gas demand and, and limited gas demand. And therefore, 
Chinese buyers had surplus LNG. But this was one of the first times that China wasn't out scrambling for LNG, as we had tended to see in peak demand times, mainly in winter, when all of a sudden there isn't enough gas and Chinese buyers go out into the spot markets and buy LNG. So that was a relatively new occurrence. And I think certainly one that we will see more of going forward because Chinese buyers and traders do have that ambition. We've seen it in oil markets of becoming more active uh, players and traders in the system, not just buyers and, and therefore price takers. China is expanding its own gas production. What, what kind of production? What's the nature of that production? Is And is production from the tarim field competitive with imports or is it a, a security of supply issue? I mean, there's very much been a focus on security of supply and increasing domestic production. If you look at government policy documents in the past couple of years, they have been emphasizing supplies more than demand, right? In previous policy documents had targets for the share of gas in the energy mix. So again, demand side targets. And now really it's all about ensuring supplies. And that is from domestic production, which comes from conventional fields, but also tight oil, shale gas, offshore. There's sort of all of the above. It's very it's very hard to get good data on the nature and forecasts of gas production in China. But from what we do know, and mainly from the Chinese majors, there's a gradual shift towards more unconventional sources. Um, knowing what the pricing structure is is also quite difficult. Gas in China, gas produced in China is not cheap, but depending on where global markets are, it can be competitive with uh, with LNG, especially the more costly LNG. But for instance, pipeline gas from Russia is has so far been power of Siberia, one of the most cost competitive um, gas supply in China. So there's a bit of everything. Well, do you think there'll be a second power of Siberia pipeline? Uh, and if so, how soon? The million dollar question. <laughs> um, obviously, we saw Xi Jinping in Moscow last week and or two weeks ago, and they didn't sign a power of Siberia too, even though Putin was quite adamant that it was in the works. It would have looked bad, I think, um, for China to be aligning itself so closely with Russia at a time when it wants to improve its relations mainly with Europe, be it to offset tensions with the US or because of its economic needs or all of the above. But I'm just not convinced that there is agreement on power of Siberia too just yet. So there may have also been technical reasons. China doesn't love the idea of the transit through Mongolia. Um, but power of Siberia would make power of Siberia too would make sense for China, especially if it is priced anywhere near what power of Siberia one seems to be priced at. So we had data for 2021. Power of Siberia one at the border was at around four dollars per MMBTU at a time when a lot of LNG was coming in at anywhere from eight to twelve dollars per MMBTU. So very, very competitive. So from a price perspective, it would make sense. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to talk, move from gas to coal. Um, and as we know, China's building new coal-fired power stations. It's opening new power stations and increasing emissions uh, reportedly 
at an annual rate that's greater than the saving of the rest of the world put together. Last year, China approved 82, I think, uh, is that correct, Michelle? New coal power plants, the highest number in seven years. Will the older ones now be retired? So the overall energy efficiency of the coal-fired fleet be increased, or are the new stations needed to grow electricity production? Needed is a slightly subjective word, I guess. It sort of depends who needs it. Um, because China has enough capacity to meet all of its peak demand. The question is, where is it and how is it traded and how is it distributed? And because China doesn't have good interprovincial trading, then often the power just doesn't reach the demand centres that need it most. Um, there are plans to build as much as 70 gigawatts of new coal capacity this year. There is a view within the top leadership, and we're hearing it more and more, that it is needed for stability, for reliability. There's been more talk about coal for backing up intermittent renewables, what gas tends to do in other countries that coal will do in China. Now, already a lot of coal-fired power plants in China are operating at 40-50% utilisation rates. Um, and this means that they will operate at even lower rates. So it's hugely problematic. These are all ultra supercritical coal-fired power plants, so they are relatively efficient. But it does mean that China's emissions profile does continue to increase, that the 2030-2060 Car targets to you know peak carbon emissions by 2030 and reach carbon neutrality by 2060 are much more complicated. Yeah, indeed, China's expanding its electricity from solar stations to quite rapidly. Can you give us an overview of China's solar power strategy? And can energy from solar power usurp fossil fuel usage in China uh, one day? The wind and solar will definitely, already the government wants them to account for all the incremental power growth, right? So we have to bear in mind that China's power demand is still rising. This is a developing country that continues to industrialize and urbanize, and therefore the energy pie is still growing. And even though we've just talked about huge numbers of coal, the share of coal in the energy mix has gone from over 70% just two decades ago to 57% now. So there is a massive drop in the share of coal in the energy mix. Renewables will continue to rise, and I just cited the 70 gigawatts of new coal capacity, but there's a plan for 160 gigawatts of new wind and solar capacity to be built this year. So as I said, as we said at the very beginning, there is all of the above, and wind and solar is being added at considerable pace and is accounting for Right now, it's 14% of power generation. Again, compare that to 66% of power generation from coal. There's still a long way to go, but wind and solar is making very rapid gains. So that would be in line with that Goldman Sachs prediction that China um, could halve its total energy imports by the early 2040s, which is extremely, that'll happen very, very quickly. But China has recently banned the export of certain solar technology expertise. Why is that? And there's been a lot of discussion about what to ban and you know which bits of, of the solar um, exports it will ban. This is a response to US bans on chips and on components into China. This is unfortunately what we're seeing is the escalation of the tit for tat sort of 
and and the beginnings of technological decoupling between China and the US. Now, coming uh, up to date very recently, China has been in the headlines for uh, a very tough zero COVID policy uh, right across the country. And that has all um, gone away now. The restrictions have been lifted. Uh, it was a controversial policy, wasn't it? But it's been a rapid uh, U-turn. Is that for economic reasons? It was a very interesting U-turn on zero COVID. And yes, I think it was. Uh, wasn't it? It was so quick. It was, yes. <laughs> you know, the consensus was it would take time, that it, you know, Xi Jinping had very much endorsed the zero COVID policy and it was all a matter of governance and therefore it would be very hard to walk away, or at least that was our view. And yet overnight um, it was changed. I think it was the combination of a very weak macroeconomic environment and the protests certainly didn't help. So there was very clear signs of social discontent. But more importantly, with Omicron, I think it was becoming clear that in order to try and clamp down on Omicron, the social and economic impact would be devastating. Um, and so they walked it back. And, and to a certain degree, you know, from a kind of governance or political perspective, it was a sign of responsiveness from the government and the kind of the government tweaking its actions in a way that was um, probably very acceptable and even agreeable to the population. Yeah, uh, I bet. Um, now, last summer, um, parts of China, notably uh, Sichuan province, experienced high temperatures, power shortages. If China has another hot summer, which looks likely, could there be a new energy crisis? Uh, and will the problem be shortages of fuels or capacity, generation capacity? Absolutely. There could be another crisis this summer. Hydro levels are low. So they were low last year and we're already coming into this year at lower um, than and sort of historical hydro levels, which poses a problem. With economic activity recover and industrial growth, we will see strong power demand. So there could very well be power shortages. The one difference between this year and last year is that there has been a lot of coal, uh, coal mining additions and capacity additions. So we have more coal in the system that, than we did. Um, and again, the problems are a mix of it's less the physical sort of the actual resource that is missing it is the dispatch rules and making sure that it is dispatched effectively and efficiently across demand centers because we don't have price signals and we don't have a national traded market staying with the environment michelle china faces many challenges deforestation desertification soil erosion arability water air soil pollution are those issues being tackled in a way that could affect the Paris Agreement targets. And what, what do you see as the major environmental challenges to China's land use? Because Chinese scientists are saying the Himalayan glaciers, glaciers, the third pole, are melting even faster than um, previously thought. So China does have to act. Is it acting in time? It is acting. I mean, is anybody acting in time? <laughs> you know, the world as a whole. 40, I suspect. We are not on track, right? We are all blowing through our carbon budget way too fast. And China is a big part of that problem. Um, we wrote a book, we published a book uh, at the end of last year called The Guide to Chinese Climate Policy. And my co-author, David Sandelow, likes to say that there are no known climate deniers in China. 
I think that is very true, right? The Chinese leadership is very well aware of the impact of climate change, the threat to the Chinese coastal provinces, which are the big export manufacturing hubs. Um, so the threats associated with climate change are very real. The action that China is taking towards its low carbon transition, I think, stem from a variety. They are not for Paris. They are because China recognizes that this is a threat, but it's also an industrial threat. Sort of if the Chinese industry is not fit for purpose in a carbon conscious world, it will not be competitive globally. And so there are other reasons for which China is trying to act in order to improve its environment. But there are also huge constraints, right? This year they need economic growth. And this year they're worried about energy security and reliability, and therefore they're adding more coal. And so it is a very mixed bag. And I think a lot of politicians, again, we look at Europe, we've had a very similar problem in Europe last year with Germany burning more lignite. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got the long term ambition, which I think is real, and it recognizes the very real threats of climate change. And yet there are short term realities such as economic growth and energy security and, you know, the energy trilemma that we talk about so much has been rebalanced and, and sort of reshaped since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the energy crises that we're seeing. Um, but China is aware of the challenges and I think it is working towards trying to alleviate those challenges. But it is too slow, as are all the other countries in the world right now. Well, part of China's uh, green um, leap forward is uh, a very big investment in electric vehicles. One figure jumped out at me is the Chinese sales of petrol and diesel cars fell 20% in absolute terms in Feb from a year earlier. And EV sales in China is going to hit 8 million this year. Now, that's going to make a big difference for big oil, isn't it? Uh, I mean, this this electrification of, of transport is, is huge. And as some say EVs will reach 80% of sales uh, in a, in less than a decade. Uh, do, you, do you think that's going to sort of affect the demand for um, energy imports? Absolutely. EV growth has been stellar. Um, I think it has exceeded expectations and it's well on track to exceeding government targets as well. Um, and this is it sort of relates to what we were just talking about. EVs have been an industrial policy in China, not, a, not necessarily a climate policy. Um, you know, if you have EVs and your power and your electricity is fueled with coal, you're not doing a lot to help carbon emissions. I mean, you are still reducing them on a life cycle basis, but you need to decarbonize your grid just as much as you need to decarbonize your vehicle fleet. And certainly the electrification of the fleet will impact sort of potential oil demand growth and sort of future oil demand growth. I think the one thing to bear in mind, though, is that even as EV sales rise and more new cars that are sold are electric, um, there's still a massive fleet of ice of gasoline fired via of gasoline fueled vehicles, and that will take time to phase out. So the Chinese oil and gas companies expect gasoline demand to peak in the next three or four years. The question is how how quickly does demand then fall off? And I think we're facing a long plateau before it falls off. Let's go to COP. Were you disappointed with the outcomes at COP27? Many people were. And what are your hopes for COP28? I mean, COP has been a challenging one um, because, you know, we look at COP26 when everybody was disappointed that 
President Xi Jinping wasn't there when, you know, had President Xi Jinping been there or even last year, would he have made a difference? China's position is China's position and that doesn't change if they're at COP or if there's pressure from other leaders. And similarly, again, at COP26, very much so the US-China agreement was hailed as the big breakthrough when the US-China agreement had absolutely nothing new in it. So, you know, I think we have to be a bit careful about what it is that we expect and what it is that we hope for. Um, I think we need US-China to be on the same page and to be giving additional momentum. I don't see that happening ahead of COP28. You're not alone. Maybe more pressure from developing countries is actually where we will get more action because China does want to present itself and has been presenting itself as the leader of the developing world, as the leader of G77. And having smaller island countries come to it and say, look, the emissions that you are producing, China, is is actually one of the causes that we will be underwater very, very soon. Maybe that will actually be a bigger impetus for change. Um, so, you know, I think one can always be hopeful and always look for maybe not the big ticket announcements and declarations, but small progress on financing, on methane emissions, on getting actual technical pieces of the puzzle moving forward in a constructive manner. One prediction is, uh, that China's total CO2 emissions will peak as soon as 2028. That's very soon. And is that likely? That is very likely. China has pledged to peak its emissions before 2030. And so 2028 is as good a date as any, I guess. I think the main issue is at what level will emissions peak? China has not promised, has not capped its emissions. Um, and what we are seeing is that with all the new coal-fired power plants and all the additions, that peak emissions number could be higher than it would have otherwise been, especially if we get strong economic recovery this year, um, then that peak will be relatively high. A few years ago, there was talk of China peaking in 2026 or 27 and issuing even more ambitious states for again, both 2030 and 2060, that now seems to be off the table. So China will meet its pledge to peak emissions before 2030. Can it do it sooner and lower is the question. And we'll leave it on that question. Michelle Maiden, you've provided us with some great insights, wonderful insights into China and the energy markets. Uh, the foundation looks forward very much to speaking to you again uh, in the future. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and YouTube. From Michelle and from me, Stephen Cole, goodbye.